You know, we're in Mark chapter 2. For you guys who are here for the first time, you're coming in. We spent from September to December every week working through Mark chapter 1. Now, I got some good news for you guys. Mark chapter 2, we're going to get through in three weeks. Okay? I can't promise it, but at least my cursory read, the way I'm reading it, I think. But Mark 1 was so instrumental in what Mark is trying to communicate that it demanded that kind of time to really walk through it. Mark's Gospel is widely regarded as the first written Gospel. It was written from Peter's perspective to Roman Christians to try to encourage them as they were undergoing persecution. And Mark's primarily focused on Jesus as a servant king. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all present a different view of Jesus. Mark's view is that of a servant king. And he starts off in verse 1, chapter 1, with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Gospel word is a Greek word and it's euangelion. We talked about that ad nauseum. We, we, we beat it down. And hopefully now, for you guys who were just here for the first time, you wouldn't know this more than likely. But the term gospel translated in its original form, euangelion, was a call. It was like a guy would stand up on a piece of city square, like a block, and he would go, euangelion, euangelion, euangelion. Which was a call to come listen. It's good news, good news, good news. Gospel, gospel, gospel. And it was only used to announce a new king is born, a new king is coronated, or a king has won a great military victory. And all the writers of the New Testament understood that. They would have known that. It was a secular term. It was not a spiritual term. For most people in America, when we hear gospel, we think salvation. And we think personal salvation. They would not have thought that. They would have thought about the country's salvation or their group's salvation. Like whoever the king is is going to establish order and he's going to rule and reign over us and lead us to a place of peace and order. And it is salvation, but it's not just me personally. Now what we've done with that word over the years now is we made it just about my personal salvation in the Gospel. Is that a part of it? Yes. That's not what they would have heard. What they would have heard would have been when that word was used, it was a king, a new king is born, a new king is coronated, or a king has won a great military victory. Now, all three things apply to Jesus. And when the writers used that word, I believe they were trying to communicate to those Roman people, hey, Jesus, the Messiah, is the new king. He rules. He reigns. You need to trust Him. And what's so interesting about Mark chapter 1 is it says, and Jesus proclaimed the Gospel, the euangelion. He proclaimed it. And then it says what He said. That's very instructive for us to look at. 
He said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe, and follow. Now, when you turn on the TV, sometimes you'll see commercials. There's a lot now. It's like the end times are coming because there's all these different preachers popping on telling people that they need to trust Jesus. The end times are coming. And some of them will say, listen, all you got to do is admit you're a sinner and then pray this prayer with me. Pray the prayer. Now you're a believer. Now you're a follower. Can God do that? Yes, He can. Is that normative? No. Is that the way that we see in the Bible they shared? No. That is a product of a system that has become pragmatic to try to get people in. Instead of people walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ and, and, and making disciples, going about their life, and then people going, well, hey, Jeff, how, how are you so different? Well, let me tell you. I'm a Jesus follower. Who's that? Well, let me tell you. And you start talking to them. Instead, it doesn't mean we don't go out and do gospel presentations. It doesn't mean we don't share the gospel in mass groups. But it means that when we do that, we must proclaim the gospel that the Bible proclaims, which is Jesus is the King who came to rule and reign. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that you and I could be part of His kingdom and walk with Him. Heaven is not just a place down the road. Heaven is being in a right relationship with God right now. And working out that faith in your life every day. Nobody who comes to faith in Christ lives an unchanged life if they really come to faith in Christ. Nobody. Even the thief on the cross. Probably the guy who had the shortest recorded life in Christ that we know of had a changed life in that short a time span. And it doesn't make that, that action that's attached to that earning your way into heaven, but that action that's attached to your belief authenticates actually that the faith is real. James talks about that. Faith is always linked to action. It cannot be divorced from it. And so as we go through this, I mean, we, we've been going... That's why we took so long to go through chapter 1. And, you know, at the end of chapter 1, we saw Jesus approached by a leper. One of the most alienated, isolated deteriorating people in the world. And leprosy is a graphic illustration of sin. One of the problems that we have is we don't look at sin the way God looks at sin. Just to be candid with you. I mean, we've all met people like that leper. In fact, we're all spiritual lepers. We don't feel like it. We don't act like it. But in the healing of the leper, what we saw is Jesus' deep pain for the consequences of sin. As He looked at that guy with pity. And what's so amazing about that is in the Old Testament, 
uh, in fact, the whole Bible, do you know in the, the whole Bible, you don't see that many people healed of leprosy. In fact, the people prior to Jesus being physically on the scene, there was one guy that we know of. Naaman in the Old Testament. He was a Gentile. But it was prophesied that Jesus would bring healing. And so the Jewish people built in the temple a court of the lepers. And it was a place where a leper was going to come when Messiah came and healed him. It's, it's that they built an actual court in there that was for that day. So that's why when Jesus healed the guy, he said, hey, go do what Moses commands. Go to the temple. Go to the priest. And so we see a very desperate guy there because he was excluded from worship. He was excluded from temple worship. He was excluded. He was desperate. And he went to Jesus because he had heard about this guy who could be the Messiah. Well, in today's passage, we see another man desperate. <clears throat> Only problem is, this man had no way to approach him. He couldn't walk. He was a paralytic. And many people in that day would have believed his condition was because of his sin or his parents' sin. It was a curse from God. He would have been viewed as unclean. He wouldn't have been allowed to go to the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed to go in the synagogue just like the leper. But he had heard about a man who healed this leper. In fact, the whole area of Galilee was abuzz about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. It was a sure sign that this guy could have been the long-awaited Messiah. But how would he get to him? What would he do? Well, Mark 2, 1 through 12 tells us. And as this text today, as we look at it, I'd like you to consider six things about Jesus here that God reveals about Jesus as Messiah. First of all, that he's a Messiah that prioritizes divine truth. That's one of his highest priorities is to communicate divine truth truth to people. Not to heal their physical illness, but to communicate divine truth. And we're going to see that. Second is that Jesus is a Messiah that prompts divine faith. He prompts people that God is moving in to be attracted to Him as the Messiah. You see, it all starts with God. God has to Open your eyes to see that He's the Messiah to draw you to Him. Otherwise, you just go to Him because you're curious about a guy that can heal people or that gets a crowd. And that happens a lot. Do people go? To, by the way, do people go to churches today because there's a crowd there and they think they should go? They're not seeking Jesus. They just go because they're trying to figure out something because their life is a mess. Now, can God use that? Of course He can. But you're not going to see Jesus for the Messiah until God opens your eyes to see that. And, and Jesus is the one. There have been a lot of other Messiahs. They didn't prompt divine faith like Jesus did. Third, He's a Messiah that provides divine mercy. He's the only Messiah that can give divine mercy. 
But that's the third thing we see in the text. Fourth, he provokes demonic opposition. The Messiah of God, Jesus, provokes demonic opposition. Why? Because Satan has been against God from the beginning. It's two worldviews. It's good and evil. But it is satanic, and these demons oppose Jesus. I had a phone call yesterday on the radio at the end of the program where this lady called and complained about demonic opposition. She felt alone. You know who else experienced that in the Bible? Elijah. He just defeated 850, 850 false prophets, wiped them off the face of the earth. And he runs like a little baby from Jezebel because he's scared. He's afraid. Oh Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. Nobody is left to serve you. And what did God say? I got 7,000 guys you don't even know about. Stop your belly. No, he didn't say that. But he, he, he told him, I got 7,000 guys. Can we go from a spiritual high to being demonically oppressed really quickly? You bet. You bet. That's when Satan wants to attack. A lot of times, he doesn't attack you when you're low. He'll let your own self-pity do that. He attacks you after spiritual leaps, spiritual successes. He'll bring opposition against you real quick. So we see that in the text. Fifth, this divine Messiah, Jesus, is a Messiah that possesses divine power. That's what makes Him different from everybody else. All these other false messiahs, they had fake healers back then. Magicians that would try to do things. But Jesus had divine power. It was God's power. He could do anything. There was nothing outside the scope of His ability. So for us today, is that true? Can He do anything at any time? Yes. So why do we get up so upset when something happens that's outside of our control? If we're His kids. I'm not talking about if you're not His. If you're His, because we get our eyes like Peter. We're, we're like Peter out on the water. We're walking on water and all of a sudden we see the wind pick up and we see the storm and we take our eyes off of Jesus, Messiah, and we put them on our circumstances. But make no mistake, Jesus has divine power. And then finally, God reveals in Jesus a Messiah that produces divine praise. He is a Messiah that when He accomplishes something, people are going to glorify God. And we see that in the text. These people saw it and they attributed it to God and they gave Him the glory. And that's the Messiah, the true Messiah, Jesus. And so as we read this text, we're going to look at these truths and kind of go into them a little bit. So join me as we read in Mark chapter 2. And if anybody needs a notebook or a pen, i got them up here. And I also have a Bible if you need one. Okay, We're going to start in Mark 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, 
not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit, thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. These are the very words of God. This story is amazing. You know why? Because it is the first proclamation by Jesus that someone's sins are forgiven in Scripture. It's the first time He says your sins are forgiven. Is there any better words that you could hear as a human being than the Son of God, the Messiah, looks you in the face and says, your sins are gone. They're forgiven. They're paid for. Isn't that, isn't that like the best news ever? I mean, you think about it. Think about everything that had been going through that guy's mind. He couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't go to the synagogue. He was unclean. He really didn't have a relationship with God because God had prescribed a particular way for His people to relate to Him and He couldn't even do it because He was considered cursed and unclean. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. It's really an amazing story. And the paralytic guy is a good representation of us. And we're going to look at that. But the first thing I want to take a look at is in verse 1 of how God reveals in Jesus this Messiah that prioritizes divine truth. It says in verse 1, He returned to Capernaum. What was going on? Well, you remember at the end of chapter 1, He had healed the leper. It says He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't go in the cities. These crowds were gathering and inhibiting Him from proclaiming the Word. I've preached in a lot of different settings. And sometimes when I was doing outreaches over in Russia, I would be over there proclaiming in a public way and people would start coming up and being oppositional to us preaching or sharing in a public way. And it was disruptive. Or there would just be people coming up and asking questions. What's going on? What's going on? And you're trying to proclaim truth. And so with crowds... You know, we like crowds in America, but crowds are really 
not good. So imagine Black Friday on steroids. All these people wanting to see a Messiah, not because He's Messiah, but they were going there because they were curious. Right? And so the Word was spreading and all these crowds were self-seeking. They were, they were passive spiritually and they were just curious. But guess what? He returned to Capernaum, which he, if you've been to Israel with me, we've gone to the place where we think Peter's home was. He was probably staying at Peter's home. That was his home base. Remember, Capernaum was a big city. He'd done his tour, comes back there, and all these people here, he's back, he's back. So they start congregating. It fills up the house. You can't get to the door. There's so many crowd, uh, crowded people there. There was no more room. And what does it say in verse 2? He was speaking what? The Word. The word there in Greek, in the original language, is the word logos, from which word we get logo from. But you know where else that's used? In John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God, and the logos was God. And in verse 14 it says, and the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. So who's the Word? Jesus. So what's Jesus teaching them? About Himself. He is teaching about Himself. And I, I, I can't say that I've ever really thought about it until I was getting ready to do this, but he wasn't speaking about the Word. He was speaking the Word. Every word that came out of Jesus' mouth about anything spiritual or important was truth. Everything that came out of His mouth was truth. He didn't lie. He didn't sin, right? But He didn't have to memorize the Torah. He was the Torah. Everything He said. Could you imagine being with Him? Everything that came out of His mouth was truth. Deuteronomy 18, God said to Moses, hey, God's going to raise up another prophet like you and listen to Him. Listen to Him. Those that don't, it ain't going to go good for you. So should we listen to Jesus when He talks truth about the Word? When He talks what the Word is? Yes. And Jesus did it everywhere He went. Whether He was in a house, on a boat, on a hillside. It didn't matter where He was. Synagogue. He wanted human beings to connect and reconnect to God's truth because they weren't connected to God's truth. Is it important for us to know what this says? If that's the case, why do we have such a hard time ingesting it? Why is it that we can find every excuse in the world to not read it? I've talked to so many guys, I can't understand it. Well, that's a problem. What do you not understand? Well, I, it's just, I don't. Why does he put this here and this here? I said, 
you know what really the problem is it's not that you don't understand it it's that you don't do what you do understand because if you don't do what you do understand it blocks your ability to get further understanding why would he let you understand more when you don't obey what you do understand but make no mistake jesus prioritized telling people the truth about Himself over everything, even healing people's sickness. Why? Because when He healed their sickness, what was going to happen to them eventually? They're going to die anyway. Right? Every, everybody Jesus healed died. Even when He raised Lazarus from the dead, He died after He raised Him from the dead. So, why wouldn't he prioritize truth? That's the most important thing that anybody could ever know was the truth about the Word, Jesus. I love teaching the Word. I love opening the Bible. I love teaching it because Ezra, Ezra, when they found the scrolls, when they went back out of Babylonian captivity, and they were rebuilding the wall and they found the book. They found the Scriptures. And I love what Ezra 7.10 says. It says, He set Himself to study the Word, to do the Word, and teach the Word. And we all should do that. Well, you know, I'm not a teacher. Yes, you are. You always teach something. you got a grandchild. you got a child. Son, daughter, granddaughter, grandson, nephew neighbor we all have the ability to convey to other people what we have learned because somebody took the time to share with us our problem is we've become vegetative in america where we like getting information we don't like passing it on to other people necessarily at least from a spiritual perspective we can talk about the election all day long. We can talk about sports all day long. We have a hard time passing on truth because we get concerned that people don't want to hear it. Can I make a suggestion? Those may not be the people you need to be investing that truth in. If you keep trying to tell people that don't want to hear, let God deal with them. Amen. And when they're ready, they'll come to you. Then you start teaching them. Take time. Listen, I learned this lesson a long time ago and I used to get frustrated at people that had this philosophy. Now I understand. If you spend all your time over here trying to convince Craig about the truth of Scripture and Bob's over here just, man, he's salivating to want to know more, but I'm not spending time with him. He's my neighbor on one side. He's my neighbor on the other side. I'm just convinced i got to win Craig to the Lord and I can't win nobody to the Lord. I've shared the truth with him. He continues to reject it. I love him. I pray for him. But I'm investing my time teaching over here on Bob. We need to do more of that as men. We need to do more of that. Jesus prioritized divine truth. Well, in verse 3, it says, They came bringing to him a paralytic. Who came bringing? Well, four men. This was a desperate man. He could do nothing for himself. And, and like I said, this is a great spiritual analogy because you and I are spiritually paralyzed. We have no ability to hear, to speak, to understand God's truth 
unless God opens our eyes and opens our mouth. We can't. We can't understand it unless He gives us. It's a gift. But I find it interesting that He chose four. Alfred Edersheim, who was a Jewish writer guy, said that he believes the number four there is put in there symbolic of the four corners of the earth. They carried this guy in north, south, east, west. We're all spiritually paralyzed. We don't have any ability to come to God on our own. And these men going in, and this shows you the curiosity of the crowd and the what I call the mindset of the crowd. They were so hungry to see and not hungry for spiritual truth. They just wanted to be there that when this, these poor men bring in the paralyzed guy, nobody would let him through. Either they thought he was unclean and they didn't want him coming in, or they just were so selfish, which was probably the case. Like in Jesus, in John 6, He said, the only reason you come to Me is you want Me to feed your belly after He fed 5,000 people. He said, you don't really want truth. And so these people kept... The paralyzed guy, I mean, that's heartless almost, isn't it? If this guy's been healing people and these guys are bringing him in to be healed, so what do they do? All the Jewish houses had an external staircase that went up to the roof. So they took him up there, and the way the roofs were constructed, you had beams, then like twigs and branches, then you had mud, and then on top of the mud you had tile. They dug through the roof, four layers, to get him down in there and let him down on the rope. That's amazing, really. They were tenacious. I was thinking about that in terms of of evangelism. How tenacious are we to get our friends to the right people? To maybe to get them to Jesus. We give up way too easy. And again, going back to this analogy, I'm not talking about continuing when somebody's rejected. But I want people to hear the good news. I want them to hear that Jesus came to rule and reign. Not the perversion of the gospel that they hear in a lot of places in this country. And not the forgiveness only gospel that they hear in a lot of places that produces a life of complacency and and really a, a faithless action. There's no action associated with this quote belief. And so we see that His prioritizing this divine truth is drawing people. He prompts divine faith in people. And so these men come to Him and we we see in verse 5 that Jesus sees their faith. How do you see somebody's faith? Guys? You you got to see action, right? And that's what He's saying. He saw their faith And he said, son, the word there means literally child, your sins are forgiven. That right there, that proclamation of the forgiveness of that guy's sins shows that Messiah provides divine mercy because only God could forgive sin. This is the first mention, by the way, of faith in Mark. And and let me just ask you this. What is the greatest personal benefit that we receive from Jesus? What? Just that. Yeah. Forgiveness. Have have you ever stopped to think about this? Does Muhammad offer forgiveness? No. 
If you know anything about Islam, he doesn't. You can read. You can go read all the Quran and read. Muhammad doesn't offer forgiveness. Does Buddha offer forgiveness? Does he? No. Confucius, does he offer forgiveness? No other religious leader in the history of the world has offered divine forgiveness to anybody. Jesus did. And He does here. What a lot of religions like Buddhism, um, Islam, Confucianism, all these uh, Taoism, all these different things, they offer uh, morals, ethics, uh, social responsibility, love, some form of earthly peace. But that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is peace with our divine Creator. It's inside all of us. Everyone knows it. Guys, I've been a chaplain to professional sports teams. I've talked to guys making multi-million dollar contracts, sleeping with all kinds of women, getting all the pleasure of world they could get, had $400,000 cars, 15,000 foot square foot houses in the middle of one of the nicest areas of Houston, empty on the inside. Because that divine need to be forgiven from their Creator has not been met. Heaven and hell are both filled with sinful people. The only difference is heaven has people that are forgiven. You don't go to hell because you're sinful. You go to hell because your sins aren't forgiven. That's the difference. Jeff, look up Nehemiah 9.17. Look up Isaiah 43.25. Chuck, look up Acts 13.38. Don, look up Ephesians 1.7. So Nehemiah 9.17, Isaiah 43.25, Acts 13.38, and Ephesians 1.7. Listen to what these say about our God. Uh, uh, read Nehemiah 9 first. 9 verse uh, 17. They refused to obey. Read it loud so they can hear. Okay. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders, that you, the wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. That's an Old Testament God. You hear this all the time. The Old Testament God's a God of wrath. New Testament is a God of mercy. That's a merciful God right there. Read Isaiah. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for your own sake and I will not remember your sins read that again I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake yeah for and my own sake my not own your sake. own sake for my, for own, my sake. own sake and I will not remember your sins Isaiah 43 25 in other words God says I blot out your sin not because of you but because of me there's nothing you do. I'm doing it because I'm merciful. Alright, who has uh, Acts 13.38? Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
through him, forgiveness of sins, through Jesus, through Messiah, forgiveness is proclaimed to you in Ephesians 1, 7, Don. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Our God is merciful. And only God can forgive sin. So Jesus, when He says, your sins are forgiven, is saying, I am God. And this provokes this demonic opposition in verse 6. It says they were questioning in their hearts. The word there means reasoning. And, And these leaders are there to investigate this popular preacher. Check on his teaching. Is it orthodox or not? And by the way, guys, divine revelation always provokes human reasoning. You know that? It still does it today. If you don't believe me, go sit in a philosophy class somewhere and try to tell them about the truth of God. Well, this is what God's Word says and see what they say. It always provokes human reasoning. In fact, progressive liberalism with the Bible is, is basically what it's doing is it's trying to bring God under the microscope of human reasoning. That's what it does. And so in verse 7, they say, why does this man speak like that? Only God can forgive sins. You see, Jews believed that Messiah would be great. He would be sent by God. But they had no idea that Messiah would be God. They didn't know that. Remember in Matthew 16... Jesus said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He used the title Son of Man. And what did they say? John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say the prophet. Who do you say? Peter says, you are what? The Christ. You are the Messiah, Son of the living God. And he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Human reasoning didn't reveal this to you, Peter. It was the Spirit of God. The Jews believed the primary role of Messiah was to bring about political freedom, not personal regeneration. They didn't think they needed to repent. They wanted to be fixed without repentance. Do we struggle with that today? Do we? Yeah. You see, the scribes are struggling with the person and the work of Jesus How can He be God? He's just a human. How can this man save people from their sins? Do people still struggle with the fact that a guy named Jesus said He can save people from their sins? Yeah, they can. It's it's the hardest thing when you're talking to people about Christ. It's the hardest thing to get them to understand. It is. It is. Whether they think so lowly of themselves that they can't be forgiven or what, I don't know. But make no mistake, this is demonic opposition. These people are tools of Satan. In fact, Jesus calls them sons of Satan at one point in Scripture. And so, what does He do in verse 8-12? through 12? He, he shows that, that the Messiah possesses divine power. He says, why do you reason or question in your hearts? Because here's the reason, guys. Man will not embrace a system that condemns him. We don't like that. Man will not embrace a system that condemns him. Ours, what we believe, what God teaches, is that we are born with original sin. We are born in a sinful state. Nobody comes into the world innocent. That's why God's mercy 
is merciful and He chooses who He's merciful to. That's, there's no injustice there. If everybody's destined to die because of justice, let's say everybody in here is a murderer. And let's say the President pardons these people. Is He unjust for condemning these to death when we are all condemned to death? Is He? No. That's not unjust. We all deserve death. And see, that's the problem. People don't like the idea of original sin. They, man doesn't like it. But here's, here's the thing. To be a part of God's kingdom, you have to acknowledge, first of all, that no one is able to figure out God on their own. Nobody's able to do that. You have to acknowledge that. Second, nobody is good enough on their own to be accepted by God. And third... There's no remedy for your sin apart from Jesus. Period. End of story. None. So, Jesus says in verse 9, which is easier to say uh, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Now, which is easier, guys, to say? Well, well to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to verify. There's no way to verify. When He says your sins are forgiven... You're not going to know to heaven. Well, nobody's going to be able. If you go, you 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 got to go there, and then you can't come back and tell. So he says, which is easier to say? And so then he makes this statement: that you may know the Son of Man has the authority, not the power, but the authority to forgive sins, because no human can forgive sins; only God. And he uses Son of Man, the Messianic title. It was only used twice in the, New, in the Old Testament for Messiah. It was used in other places, but in reference to Messiah, it was only used in Psalm 8 and Daniel 7. Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Talking about man here. You've given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. So Son of Man means man the ruler. Do we see man as a ruler today? Over dominion over over the world? Does man have dominion over the animals? Does he? Really? Alright, go get in a cage with a lion and let me see you exercise dominion over him. You see what I'm saying? The point is, we don't have dominion over the animals. Our world is messed up. We're messed up. When Adam and Eve sinned, it threw it all out of whack. And so, we don't have dominion. If you think we have dominion, why does 9-11 happen? If we have dominion, why is all this pain and suffering going on in the world? We don't have dominion. And so the whole point is, in Psalm 8, he is pronouncing that he gave us that dominion, but it got messed up. Daniel 7 says this, in Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nation and language would serve. His dominion is everlasting, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
Messiah, Jesus, that's talking about Messiah, is going to come and have dominion and restore all things. That's why we read in Isaiah that the lamb will lay down with the what? The wolf. Because he's going to restore it all. Man who was the vice regent of God that lost his rule will be restored by Messiah. In, in verse 11, he goes, you don't believe me? I'll prove it. Pick up your bed and walk. And what did the guy do? It was immediate. There was immediate healing. This guy who had been lame, a paralytic, jumped up, got his bed, boom. And it's a picture of salvation, guys. It's a picture of salvation. We're paralyzed and only God can heal. And when He does heal, He heals immediately. It is know this, well, you know, He prayed this prayer, but there's really not been a change in His life. Well, He hasn't been healed. He hasn't been healed. Yeah, but I know He prayed. A lot of people prayed. Judas prayed. Yeah. When, when the regeneration comes, when, when you are His, it's immediate. Now, does that mean that you won't struggle? This is not talking about perfection of life. What this is saying is, there is a change in your loyalty. There is a change in your direction. And you're a baby, like Paul says. You're an infant. You start off with milk. And you start taking baby steps. But there's a change. There's a change. Um, yes, sir? Justification is immediate. <coughs> sanctification takes time. Yes. Well, it does. But, what, but faith is never divorced from action. It can't be. There's no, there's no example in the New Testament of any faith divorced from action. And so, what happens? <coughs> Verse 12, <coughs> it produces divine praise. They all were amazed. They glorified God. They said, we've never seen anything like this. You know what it's like over in Exodus 8.19 when, when Pharaoh's guys goes, this is the finger of God, Pharaoh. We ain't never seen nothing like this. Why? Because He's divine. Jesus is divine. So here's some takeaways, guys. Jesus is Messiah. He's God. Okay? He, he, he fits the bill. He's divine. He... he Prioritize the truth of God. He is Messiah. Second, Jesus for, can, can forgive anybody He chooses to forgive. Right? So that means nobody's outside the scope of His forgiveness. He can do whatever He wants. Third, He gives life immediately to those He forgives. New life is there. It's a new life. It's not something that has to be kind of learned. It's spirit-driven, not human-driven. It's spirit-driven. Fourth, faith is evidence of His divine mercy working in our life. The faith that we have is a gift of God. We know that. It says what in Ephesians 2? For by grace you're saved through faith. We flip it sometimes in the way we think about it. By faith, we're saved through grace, but it's, it's by grace. In other words, who's the initiator? God. He draws. He opens our eyes. You have to have Him to do that. 
So would, and, that, would that be the lowering down of them through the roof, the faith that he lowered down the roof? Well, yeah, the, the faith that drew them there, man. Yeah, it was like these. he was already working in their lives. Right. But the actual changing came when Jesus said, Arise and get your bed in the morning. Well, the, yeah, Jesus, well, Jesus, the, when Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven, He's a new creature. Yeah. All right? And finally, divine faith is always linked to action. Always. It's not passive or dormant. You can struggle. You can make mistakes. But you're not content with those. You don't go, oh well, I messed up. <laughs> it's just life. <clears throat> no, you're, the Spirit won't let you do that. The Spirit's job is to continue conforming you to the image of Christ. You know what the Hebrews writer said? Strive for the holiness without which no man will see God. So, who are you following? And what's guiding you? Divine truth or human reasoning? It's real easy to let the human reasoning take over or try to do some kind of mixture of divine truth with human reasoning. It's just, it's, it's the Spirit giving us understanding, guys. So if you're reading and you don't understand, God, help me understand. If there's something in me that's keeping me from understanding, let me know. Let me repent. Going back to that system, we don't like to acknowledge we're flawed. We don't like to acknowledge we've messed up. We don't like to acknowledge that we're needy, especially as men. So, Craig, will you close our time in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, the truth that calls us into lives that uh, interaction. God, may your word really go deep in our hearts. Me and how it uh, causes me to live what I choose to do. Thank you for Doug's uh, insight, wisdom of the Holy Spirit that you've given him. And for each of us, Lord, as we step out of this room, God, guide us to uh, be people that through our actions, through our caring, through our love, draw people to come to us and say, what is it about you that's different? point to your son Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.